morning, everybody. I'm going to give myself a little bit of space here before I send things flying. So good to be with you all this morning. Uh, welcome to you online. Welcome to those of you in the venue. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Gareth. Uh, I'm privileged to serve on the team uh, that leads this church. And this morning, I'm ending off a series entitled God With Us. God with us. We're looking at the reality that God breaks into our lives with love and grace and mercy when we are undeserving and least deserving. And then we're considering how we respond to this God and create space in our lives for His presence and His Spirit and His transforming of us. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've considered how to incorporate silence and solitude into our lives, prayer, biblical meditation. Uh, in fact, right now getting emailed to you to help you with this is a devotional uh, leading up to Easter. Um, and it's, it, it might be a little bit longer than a devotional that you've done before. It'll probably take you 10 to 15 minutes each morning. Um, and, and I make no apology for that because actually sometimes we need a little bit of time uh, to actually really slow ourselves down and create space for God's presence. And so it's going to give you an opportunity to pause, uh, to reflect on a text, to rejoice in some truths from God's Word, uh, to ask for some specific things, uh, and to yield to God's presence in your life. And if you're paying attention, that's just the acronym for pray, for pray uh, with two R's, but the acronym for pray, pause, rejoice, reflect, ask and yield. Uh, so that's getting emailed to you this morning, and we're going to do that as a community tomorrow um, as we are responding to God's presence in our lives, us with God. Now this morning, my title is Weeping for God's Comfort. Weeping for God's Comfort, and it's very likely that you haven't heard a title uh, like that in church before, uh, and it's going to make more sense when I read our text. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the text together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are the recipients of your kindness and your gentleness. And as we consider the occasions when life gets hard this morning, I want to ask that your spirit would minister your kindness and your gentleness to us in such a way that we learn to open our lives more fully to you in both the good and the hard, so that we can draw closer to you, understand you more, and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 13. How long, Lord? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. 
How long, Lord? This psalm is a kind of a prayer that is called a lament. It's in the first person crying out to God in the midst of difficult or harsh circumstances. And the interesting thing is scholars tell us up to two-thirds of the 150 psalms are either psalms where the whole psalm is lament or a portion of it is lament. In the book of Job, we see Job lamenting to God over the circumstances that he finds himself in. There is an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, where the prophet Jeremiah weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of God's people. Jesus laments. I imagine that when Paul asked God three times to remove his thorn in the flesh, he was probably lamenting. My starting point as I read this is a disconnect. Because I think to myself, well, my prayers don't sound like this. At least until very recently, my prayers have almost never sounded like this. And yet, it's so prevalent in the Scriptures. I imagine for many of you, your prayers don't sound like this. And so our starting point this morning is why do we have this disconnect? Why, if this is such a prevalent way of praying in Scripture, are we so disconnected? And I think the first thing that is very different from David is our circumstances. Our circumstances feel so different to David who wrote this. First of all, life is so much more easy. Now, that's not to deny the difficulty that you might be going through or that life is busy and rushed and we've got all these things on our place. But objectively, life is easier in 2023 than it was in the ancient Near East when David wrote this. We have running water. We have indoor plumbing. We have medicine. We have transport. We have microwaves. We have grocery stores. Objectively, life is far, far easier for us in 2023 than it was for David, who was probably in a cave on the run when he wrote this. Life is much easier for us than it was for David. Secondly, death feels much further away most of the time from us. I want you to just imagine for a moment how different your view of the world would be if you were one of six siblings and you went to two funerals of your siblings while you were growing up. I want you to imagine for a moment how different your view of the world would be if every single year we had between two and six funerals that we all attended, many of whom were the funerals of children. That was the reality in those days. And so death feels so much further from us because it's not a reality that we are confronting every two or three months potentially. Thirdly, culture is very confused when it comes to hardship and difficulty. And you get a whole range of ways of dealing with it, all the way from condescending to cliched. I was listening to a stand-up comedian this week, and uh, here's what she said. She said, if you can find a way to laugh at the most difficult things in life while you are going through them, then you might come out all right on the other side. And part of us maybe resonates with that. We go, yeah, that, that, maybe that doesn't sound so bad. But 
she was saying that in the context of the death of one of her parents. That's unbelievably condescending to what she herself is going through, and it's unbelievably condescending as a worldview to put on this entire massive audience that she's speaking to. But culture has no idea what to do with death and difficulty. On the other end of the spectrum, it's, it's cliched, it's hackneyed, it's just soppy and sentimental and doesn't take life seriously. And, and somewhere in the middle is the dark and the gritty and you know, it gets an Oscar award because it just faces the reality of life head on and confronts the difficulty with no hope. And it's no wonder that culture is confused. And so we, we put all of these things together and we kind of arrive at this conclusion. What we need is control. What we need is control. And we can control because life is far easier than it was back then and death is much further than it was back then. And if there's all of these options, what I need to do is I need to pick one and I need to control the outcomes. And the reality is in the northern suburbs of Cape Town, many if not most of us are in the top 10% income bracket, probably far higher than that within South Africa. And most of the time control is available to us. Most of the time control is available to us. We can afford the doctors, we can afford the psychologists, we can afford the food, we can afford the transport, we can get the jobs. And so control is our conclusion until control is no longer available to us. Until our child is sick, until a parent has cancer, until a loved one has a disease, until joblessness has gone on for a long time, until there's relational betrayal with no way of getting back from it, whether we've done it or it's been done to us. And when we finally realize that control is not the conclusion but an illusion, we don't know how to pray like this. We don't know how to pray like this even in church. So let's, let's move from thinking about culture and how culture deals with us to thinking about how we deal with this. I think sometimes we get our theology and our relationship with God out of balance. We, our, our right thinking about God trumps our relationship with God or our relationship with God trumps our right thinking about God. Churches tend to go in one of one, one of those directions, I would say, we're more prone to allow our right thinking about God to trump our relationship with God in Common Ground Durbanville. I mean, I read this and I'm like disoriented. I'm like, no, 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 that, 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 that can't be right. It can't be right to pray like that. That's not true of God. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't hide his face from us. David, don't you remember what you wrote? That you couldn't get away from God's presence? If you settle on the far side of the sea, even there, his hand will guide you. His right hand will hold you fast. You've forgotten your own theology, David. And we read this and we, we're kind of disoriented and we get to verse 5 and 6 and we go, okay, okay, all right. He had a bit of a wobbly, but 5 and 6, he gets back to the point, which is, I trust in you, God, I'll sing to you. He had just had a bit of a wobbly, right? We go, no, God is in control. How can, how can you cry out to God? And our right thinking about God trumps relationship with God in the midst of difficult circumstances. I think we're less prone to the other error, at least in this church, but sometimes relationship with God trumps right thinking about God and you. You get circumstances where you delight in the nearness of God, but you actually don't believe he can change your circumstances. For whatever reason, God is not actually in control. And so he's near and, and maybe you can weep with him, but he can't actually do anything about it. 
and our understanding of our right thinking of God and our relationship with God just gets out of balance. I think the other thing that sometimes happens is we confuse a desire for an outcome with faith in God. We confuse a desire for an outcome with faith in God. And I need to be careful here that you don't misunderstand me. But I get nervous, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I get nervous when I hear people say, I'm trusting God for X. I'm trusting God for a relationship. I'm trusting God for a job. I'm trusting God for healing. I get nervous. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I get nervous. Because if what you mean by that is I've come to God in faith and I've asked him to move on my behalf and ultimately I'm trusting in him, great, great, that's fine. But I suspect that sometimes what we mean is my faith is resting on the outcome that I've predetermined what the good is in the situation, and if God doesn't come through with that specific outcome, then my entire faith structure begins to collapse. That's why I say I get nervous when I hear that language. It's not necessarily wrong, but it can be an indication that we're basing our hope on a specific outcome rather than on God himself. We were in an elders meeting this week, and we had a guest pastor with us, and just as he was sharing with us, he actually referenced this psalm, not knowing I was going to preach it. And he said, why did my best friend betray me in the context of quoting the psalm? And obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, probably a long time has passed, he said, so that I could learn to depend fully on God. Not outcomes, but God himself. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that in a circumstance, you're going to get the good outcome that you think would be best for you. I'm sure he didn't think it would be best for him that his friend betrayed him. It means that we trust no matter where God takes us, he is working for good in the midst of that. In the midst of that. We can't confuse asking God for outcomes, which is right, which is good. He delights to answer us, but we can't confuse that with faith in God himself. What we find in this prayer is we find the perfect joining of circumstances and right thinking about God and relationship with God. And the only way I know to explain that is to tell you about my four-year-old boy, Matthew. It's the only way I know how to explain that. So this morning, I had a different one, but then it happened again this morning, so I'll use this morning's one. This morning, I'm calling him to get dressed, and he's watching cartoons, so he doesn't come. So I walk into the lounge, and I turn off the TV, which, you know, provokes his ire, and, uh, and I sit him on my lap, and this is how we do timeouts. He sits on my lap, and I just hold his arms gently but firmly and talk to him, and he's very soft-hearted, so... Within about 30 seconds, there's tears on my, on my sleeve. And then he says, sorry. And then I let him go from the timeout. And then I grab him again in a hug. And it's almost the exact same position as the timeout. All that's changed is he knows he's getting hugged 
not a timeout. You see, the one who's in control of his circumstances is the one who's in control of his circumstances. The one who's in control of his circumstances is the one who can control his circumstances. And the one who is in control of our circumstances and can change our circumstances is the only one who can comfort us in our circumstances. And I've moved from my inadequate analogy of me and my four-year-old to the reality of who God is. That's what this kind of prayer is. It's an acknowledgement that the one who controls my circumstances is the only one who can change my circumstances and is the only one who can comfort me in my circumstances. This is not complaining about God as we heard the Israelites did last week when they went through the desert. This is going, Father, it feels like you've got me in timeout and my tears are pouring onto your sleeve. Won't you help me to understand so I can just get back to the hug of your embrace. That's what this is. And our level of vulnerability speaks to our level of intimacy in any kind of a relationship. Our level of vulnerability speaks to our level of intimacy. Someone this week said to me, Gareth, that thing I told you the other day, that's the first time I've ever told anybody that. I've never told anybody that before. And in that moment, I, I, I felt the intense privilege of increasing intimacy in a relationship because that's what happens. Vulnerability and intimacy go hand in hand. So what does it say about my relationship with God if when I'm going through circumstances of disease, not able to conceive, loss of a loved one, pain, difficulty, relational turmoil. What does it say about my intimacy with God if I can't have this level of vulnerability? What does it say? God desires to be in our lives. He comes with gentleness and He comes with kindness. He's a rock that we can build on. He's a fortress that protects us from what comes outside. He's a shield that shields us from the fiery darts of the enemies. And those hard things are outward facing so that on the inside, we can be recipients of His kindness and His gentleness. The other reality of intimacy and vulnerability is that your intimacy and vulnerability can never go deeper than your level of trust. Until you have trust, you can't get deeper into intimacy and vulnerability. And so the question underneath so much of this as we, as we grapple with why do we not pray like this, the, the question that we've got to face underneath all of this is, do I trust God enough to throw myself on His mercy, to say there's no answer, but look on me and answer, Lord my God. There's nothing else that'll work, but look on me and answer, Lord my God. Do we trust God enough for this level of vulnerability, this level of intimacy, letting go of outcomes and trusting in who He is? And the way I want to answer that question is to look at Jesus' own lament. Jesus' lament as we approach Easter 
in the garden. Luke 22, he leaves his disciples and he prays. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will be, not my will, but yours be done. And this next verse, I've never really noticed this next verse before. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Only Luke includes this detail. I've never noticed this before. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Here's what's happening. Jesus is praying, Father, take this cup away from me, not my will, but your will be done. He prays that to the point of exhaustion, that he can pray no more, to the point that an angel needs to come and strengthen him, and being strengthened by that angel, he doesn't stand up in that strength and go to confront those who would arrest him. The anguish and turmoil of his heart is such that with that strength, he just prays further to the a point of something that seems almost impossible. But Dr. Luke, Luke was a medical doctor, knows under the most extreme forms of duress is possible. His sweat comes out of his brow like drops of blood. Father, take this cup away from me. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, take this cup away from me. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, take this cup away from me in anguish until he sweats drops of blood. Until his final lament on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we open up our lives in intimacy and vulnerability, we're trusting that we're not going to be rejected. We're trusting that whatever pain and sorrow and ugliness comes out will somehow not result in our rejection, but will somehow result in us being loved and accepted. And we've all experienced trying to open up some intimacy and vulnerability and facing rejection, and we all have the fear of that. Jesus' lament means that when we come to the Father, that fear is off the table. It's off the table. Because everything that would be rejected in us was rejected in Jesus in our place. Every bit of ugliness of our soul, every bit of us that, hey, if you knew that about me, you wouldn't want to speak to me. All of that is dealt with because Jesus went through this lament. Because Jesus faced it head on. And all the times when I haven't yielded to God in my life, all the times when I have been outcomes focused rather than focused on who God is and His reality of working good in my life, even that is taken away because of the perfect obedience of Jesus. Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Let me tell you how you can begin to learn to have this level of intimacy with God in your life. A really good way is just to read through the Psalms and read a Psalm and then pray it. Just do that every day. It'll take you from the heights of praise 
to the depths of despair. Look on me and answer me, Lord God. Learn to pray. And, and if you're in a situation and you go, well, Psalm 13 doesn't seem relevant for my life right now, then you pray that for the life of your friend. Lord, how long will you hide your face from them? How long will you allow them to go through this sorrow? Reveal yourself to them in it, Lord God. And we pray this as a community, not just for ourselves, but for one another. It's one of the ways I've been learning to pray this. It's to pray for other people. And an intimacy in your prayer for them as you grow in relationship with God. And your heart then opens broader to them as well. We've got to learn to pray like this because God desires to come into the most difficult situations in our lives and dispense grace and dispense mercy and for us to know his love in those difficult situations. This is one of the ways that we open ourselves up to him in our lives. So my encouragement to you, learn to pray the Psalms. That's the, that's the practical step. But the heart step, the heart step is learn to trust. Look on Jesus' lament. Look on his perfect obedience. Look on how he took everything that could possibly cause you to not trust God with your heart and see that you can trust him. Another reality of lament that I haven't touched on this morning that we can lament as a community together. We can cry out to God together and you can do it for yourself, but you can do it for the people around you if you're currently in a situation where you don't need to lament right now. And so what we're gonna do is we, we've got a song that we're gonna sing. It's quite different to worship songs that we normally sing because it is a song of lament. It is based on Psalm 13. And so we're going to sing it together, and, and for some of you, as you sing it, use this as an opportunity to trust God and to cry out for Him, look on me and answer, Lord God. And for some of us, it's an opportunity to go, I know there's people here that are going through difficulty, and I'm going to stand in solidarity with them. I'm going to take one step in the valley with them as we do this together. Look on them and answer them, Lord God. So if the worship team can come up. And then we're going to sing that together. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that we can trust you. You gave us your most precious gift. How could we not trust you? You've taken away everything that would cause you to reject us. How can we not trust you? You've given everything to us. How can we not trust you? I want to ask as we sing together now that you would pour grace upon us by your spirit of knowing you as our father, knowing your intimacy through our vulnerability as we trust in you, as we cry out to you together.